What's up? Welcome to Project Freelance. So I got to let you know, this episode was actually recorded during quarantine. So it's a bit of a longer episode. We talked for quite a while about freelancing and filmmaking. And there's a lot of back and forth in this episode. It's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I don't often get questions from the guests. So Jamie actually had a few questions for me when it comes to filmmaking. So it was really cool to, you know, have that back and forth with another filmmaker. So this is Jamie Bennington. He is a musician. He is a writer, a director for films. He also runs an Airbnb. If you guys missed the episode about the coronavirus, tips for freelancers during the coronavirus outbreak, you should definitely go back and check out that episode. Jamie had a lot to say and he had a lot of insight on what's going on in Arizona as far as the corona outbreak goes. And so, yeah, definitely check that episode out. I will link it down in the description. But before we get started with this episode, I have to let you know that I have a book out called No Tracers, An Urban Explorer's Diary. And if you want to pick up a copy of it to support my art during this time, I would absolutely love that. I will sign it and send it out as soon as USPS will let me mail things to you. <laughs> Uh, go to justtheletterk.com slash no tracers. And if you want to pick up an art photo print, of one of my photos, you can head to justtheletterk.darkroom.tech. I'll put a link down in the description for that as well. I have some exclusive photos up there that I think would look great in your space, whether it be your office, your school, your locker, your bedroom at home, your living room. I think, I think my art looks pretty good on walls. I mean, I have a bunch of stuff printed out on my wall. I'm actually looking at it right now and it's vibrant, it's colorful, and it's you know, it's high res, so it looks pretty freaking good printed out. Um, printing out my photos is something that I love doing, so I would love to share that with you in the form of a photo print. Just the letter k.darkroom.tech. Check it out. Other than the book and the photo prints, there's a bunch of affiliate links down in the description for things like camera gear, backpacks, solar chargers, things that I will help you track your expenses for tax season next year, because uh, I hope you've already paid your taxes, unless you got an extension. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of links down in the description that I think will help you out. So be sure to check those out at your leisure. And if you like this podcast at any point in time, please leave a rating and some feedback. And if you leave a feedback, I will send you a signed photo print of one of my photos to say thank you. So thank you in advance for doing that. I greatly appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow. All right, let's get into this episode. Jamie, please introduce yourself and what it is you do to the Project Freelance audience. My name is Jamie Bennington, and I am a director. And for the most part right now, I'm a director. I do a little bit of Airbnb, though. Those are my two streams of income. And then we'll just go straight into how did you get into filmmaking in the first place, into writing and directing? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, do you want the long story or the short story? I would like the long story. It's a podcast. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, it started in my youthful years of seven. No, I'm just kidding. I Okay. So I actually, let's see, where did I start? I I started as a writer. I wanted to be a writer so bad that I would write a bunch. I guess I didn't know it was called fan fiction at the time, but I would write fan fiction um, and just like make my own stories up with the characters. But then I would get sidetracked. I actually wrote most of a book that was basically Percy Jackson. And um, I found it the other, like, like a month ago and it was so embarrassing, but it was awesome at the same time. Um, but I, I started there, but I got so frustrated with not having the mental bandwidth or the emotional capability of like an adult that like a book just seemed kind of ridiculous to me. Like I would get so angry, just try to write it. Cause it's, it's a lot of work. So, um, I'd stop. And then I got into visual art and I actually went to school for visual art. And then I immediately stopped because I'm left-handed. Like I got pretty good. Cause basically what I wanted to do was like animate, um, cartoons like, uh, avatar, the last Airbender and things like that. Those are like my bread and butter. I fucking love that show. It's a masterpiece. Um, and it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful show to look at. And I would try to do that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, even like Ben 10, like that kind of stuff too. Um, they're all in the same vein of like s Saturday morning cartoons and whatnot, but I was really interested in it. And then in art 
class, they make you use like pastels and shit. And I'm left-handed. So I go, I don't have that lift on my, are you left-handed or are you right-handed? Oh, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. So when you're left-handed, you drag, you drag your forearm and, and every, you know, basically every part of your arm across the page because you don't have that lift that comes with the right, um, the right hand. And it smears everything and gets everything dirty. And like your arm just like makes a mess everywhere. So I got really, really annoyed with that really quickly. I guess I was kind of temperamental as a kid, I guess. Now that I'm saying this out loud. Um, and then I took piano classes because I was really interested in that. And um, at that point, I didn't even start music until I was like 14. And it was by force. My my mom got me a piano and, and was like, here, you play this. And I was like, okay. But it was because I had expressed interest in music. It wasn't just because she was like, I want you to be something. Um, so that happened. And I basically never left the piano. So during that visual arts period, I was really into music. I hadn't quite started writing yet. And then, and I promise this goes back to the topic. Um, I became a musician officially through training and all this stuff. Um, I studied classical piano for like six years after that. And then became a composer and all this stuff. Cause I, I went and saw Sherlock Holmes. Um, the Guy Ritchie movie with um, Rachel McAdams and, and Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr., which is still a fantastic movie. Um, and the music just like blew my mind. So I, it was the first score I ever really listened to. And then I got interested in Battlestar Galactica. So Bear McCreary, I got interested in Michael Giacchino um, and, and kind of like unearthed this network of composers and was kind of like, all right, well, I, I want to do that. That's what I'm going to do. So I went to college for that. And, and my whole goal was to learn composition officially through like traditional means so that I could break the rules. But, you know, that way I can also understand where like, like I'm a big history person. So I love understanding where things come from. And, um, you know, getting trained in a traditional fa fashion, you start to learn, you know, the people who started the whole idea of composing. And, you know, you learn about really influential figures like Schumann or uh, Brahms, you know, Shostakovich, people like that. And to me, that really enriches, you know, my music. But on top of that, it has a dual function of like, as a film composer, you have to know so many different kinds of music and you have to know how to do so many different things um, because you don't know what your projects are going to call for. So um, I kind of got crazy in that. And then I did my first student film and that one was actually i don't know if it was my first but the first one i remember was jet Provado. um it was directed by my friend yadira and uh, my roommate acted in it and i did the music and it was this kind of like it was a really good like heritage piece but um not but anything she won and we went and um that was my really good experience and then i did um a bunch of different student films and, and they were like the worst experience that I've ever had ever. Like I hate student films. Um, I think that there, that's not to say I hate student filmmakers. I just, the, I know the process of making student films and in the context of school, making movies or any, any kind of media like art at all is a nightmare. Um, or it has a potential to be. And, um, so I kind of got disheartened with all of that. And this is where it ties back to filmmaking. I decided that I could do better than the people that I was working with and um, really devoted myself to like understanding what a director does and what a writer does. I started writing again. I wrote a feature um, then I wrote a bunch of comedy and, you know, I started finding my ability as a person to entertain other people, uh, which I'm still working on. And then, um, you know, as a director, I just watched a ton of movies. Like I watched a bunch of TV at the time. I probably watched like 14 television shows at once. Um, but, and that's not, a, that's not a fake number. I really did that. And um, I would watch movies like day and day out, remove, see what I liked, see what I didn't like, see what, you know, languages I, directorial languages I liked. I became a huge David Lynch fan. Um, not just, just cinema, 
cinematically, but also, you know, spiritually, I think he's just an incredible human being an incredible artist. Um, you know, Christopher Nolan, um, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, you know, just finding like people that I enjoyed. And then, um, you know, I kind of developed, developed a taste for movies and stuff like stuff like that. And what I wanted to make and what I didn't want to make. And, uh, and that's kind of been the driving force is just literally like, like, well, if I can, you know, do it, why not? And I, I found a lot too in, in college, you know, student filmmakers don't really, they're not very, very amicable. Like, like they're just kind of like a lot of them are kids growing up, you know? So there, a lot of them don't understand how to connect or communicate yet. Um, and so they make a lot, like I got a lot of like impossible, impossible standards or like, like they'd be like, okay, write 15 minutes of music now. And I want it to be curated to this footage. And this is not the picture lock. It's going to change. And if you don't do it, I'm never working with you again. Like that kind of like crazy uh, uh, fever dream. Kind of, it's like almost like a fever pitch. Like the time you're doing it, you're like, what the fuck is going on? That's essentially what doing my experience doing student films is like. Um, and I, I just basically was like, I, I don't know. There's got to be a better way to do it. And, and also there's a really great saying where it's, like know enough about what you need people to do so you can put you know the right people in those places um so you know with directing it's like okay well i need to know who does a good who's good using the camera who has a natural sense of light or what kind of light we're using or like you know the actors of course casting is a huge deal like figuring out who fits the part and why it can't just you know with low budget projects be anybody um, just because you don't have the money to have anybody, you know, you will find somebody that fits that mold, um, that, that you're, but a lot of my stuff has also been very like running gun and like, we'll figure, figure it out when we get there. So in a lot of ways, I think the student film process actually helped me because I'm a lot more, I have a lot of improvisation in my work that typically turns out fine. You Sometimes there are moments where you're like, wow, that failed miserably. But I mean, and what? practice practice of anything do you not right um it's just a matter of trying things out and um so maybe there is a positive in student filmmaking is is that you, that you, you get the idea like once you get there you you have to work with what you got right and, and it has to you know it has to work you don't have a choice so um yeah it's a lot about like thinking on your feet and you know trying to like you said do a lot of improvisation yeah. i remember i mean i have a bachelor's in film production and i remember making my student films and what that was like and now my roommate my roommate that i live with now is a film student so i'm watching him go through the same frustrations that i went through just with like a little bit better technology you know the cameras the lighting all that stuff is better you know and uh so it's super interesting to watch him go through all this stuff that i already went through and kind of like right. guide him through it um, so you would say, uh, or would you say that school is necessary when it comes to, you know, uh, pursuing your passion? Do you think that, uh, you benefited a lot from studying this stuff in school? I mean, it sounds like you did. Um, I would say that I don't think, I think it, I think it depends on the one, the kind of person you are, you are. And I think it also depends where you go because for me, I, Let's see. How do I word, word this? I think education is always important. I think it's always important to know the most about whatever you're doing um, because, you know, you're trying to do a good job. Um, and, and one of the things, because I, I went through college. I hated college, by the way. I hated it. It was the worst thing. It's the second worst thing to ever happen to me. Um, I cannot tell you like, and this isn't everybody's experience, of course, but I just had a bad go of it. Like everything was against me. Um, I was constantly changed. Like I changed my major. Um, not, that's not uncommon, but I was in my major for two and a half, uh, no, two years because I thought I was in it. And then it was like a competition at the end and they just like threw me to the side. And that was kind of really heartbreaking for me. So in a lot of ways, I think school is important because you need to know everything you can about what you're doing, but also because it teaches you how to deal with stress. Um, college is high stress. Uh, I don't think anybody could accurately display like, uh, or convey to me how stressful college can be. Uh, it, it has its moments of, of 
lucidity where you're like, wow, this is actually kind of nice. Um, but it's, especially in the arts, it's all competition. It's all people trying to be better than each other. And I'm not really that kind of person. So, you know, like I said, it, it kind of matters, you know, what kind of person you are. Um, I like learning. I just like learning. That's it. I don't, I'm not a scholar or anything. I just like learning. I learn about a bunch of different things. You know, like last summer I taught myself the intro to fucking uh, chemistry because I was just interested in it. And that's it. I just like learning things. It's not like I have an interest in being a chemist. It's just that, you know, I'm interested about the world around me. And so when I think it comes to, I think when it comes to learning, it's, it should really be about core things. It shouldn't be about specific practices because there are so many things in film school I learned that I do not ever use ever. Never. I don't use it because it just doesn't work. Like it, there's something about practical application that's missing. And a lot of art schools, like I was a music, I was in a music college. My minor was film and television. My major was music business. Um, there's not a lot of practical application in any of those classes. Like uh, with a music business, I, my degree one my degree hasn't gotten me anything two um a lot of it's like handled by other people like the stuff they teach you is not stuff you ever have to do yourself um if you're in a situation where you're say recording or you're you know writing a contract for a record deal or something um you just don't you just don't do it and a lot of the teaching can also be very bad and i think that's the hardest part about going to school is like you could get really really great teachers or you can only get one great teacher the entire time you're in your track and i only got i got two two good teachers i had an excellent spanish teacher and i had an excellent personal piano instructor um and my spanish teacher and my piano teacher were the only two teachers in my entire college career that realized that i was having a hard time i'm keeping up because i did care and i wasn't understanding the material and i was trying to understand it they saw that and they came to me and they said hey I see that you're struggling. Let's figure out a way to make this easy for you and not easy for me. Like, like as long as it's easy for you, I can deal with it. And unfortunately, you don't really get a lot of those kinds of teachers. And that's where a lot of the frustration comes from in college, I think, is, you know, the level, the quality of teaching that you're getting. Because, because you go in expecting so much. Like, you're like, oh, I paid for it. For one, I paid for it. I, I'm paying for top-notch teaching. And, you know, you often get shitty teachers and that's not a comment on the teachers themselves or I, I don't know, like a lot of it has to do with politics in the state. A lot of it has to do with the money and where it goes in a state and um, also, you know, what district you're in or whatever. But, um, you know, I was at U of a and and it was just uh, the university of arizona uh, in tucson oh my god the university of arizona in tucson and um it was very hit and miss and i found that was the most difficult thing for me because as a person who loves to learn like it's really disappointing it not just for yourself but you know, you know for your teacher um for your image of your teacher to not get what you thought you were going to get or what you hoped to get um you know, I went, into, I went into like music theory classes expecting different things. And I got when I went into music theory classes, because honestly, music theory should just be history. It should, it shouldn't be practical application. And I think that that's where a lot of like college education gets mixed up is like, they think they're being practical and they're not being practical at all. Um, you know, I just did my first short film, which is, you know, it's a longer short film, but it's kind of my director debut, if you will. And I learned more more doing that and going through the process of you know raising my own funds making my own business you know casting scheduling you know everything myself and just going through the motions and just doing it than i did ever in a film class ever um you know i, I just think i don't know because i did a couple of production classes and they were like this is how you turn on a camera and you're like, wow, the teacher can barely do it. And that that was the funny part is like the teachers would, I once, I once watched a teacher in my production class spend 40 minutes of the one hour class trying to put a tripod together. Like that's the kind of stuff that I get scared for people going to college because it's like, 
nobody nobody checks that like they you ask the film department they're like i don't care like it doesn't matter but to you it matters because you just lost an hour you just lost 40 something minutes because your teacher said she was the shit and now can't put a fucking tripod up so it's like there's a lot of that where you're like man i i don't know you know but there is something to be said about just learning like the practical application stuff not so much it's not so good but you know i also had classes on the history of television and the history of film and where the box office comes from and what seasonal uh cycles look like in television that stuff is so important and it's stuff you will learn about the more you work in those industries but it's something you should already kind of know when you get into it um you know there's a very big difference trying to submit a pilot in pilot season than trying to submit at any other time of the year for television and to know that that's an advantage so college college and eh, education yeah yes college is not it's not all it's cut out to be um if it got you a job if your degree got you a job i would say go for it <laughs> but, but my degree has never got me a job good faith to go for it i would say education is though yeah i was gonna say uh yeah my my bachelor's in film production has not gotten me a job but my experience as a filmmaker has gotten me a job you know so i mean that's great as long as you i think learn the fundamentals whether it's in college or on youtube i think i think that you know either way as long as you learn those fundamentals you should be good to go yeah exactly like if you have a question of how a camera works go to youtube and type in how does a camera work? And then it will, it will come up with like a bunch of different ones. Is it a film camera? Is it DSLR? What is it? And they'll, they'll show you how it works bit by bit. You don't need to go to go to college for that. And that, and that's kind of honestly, various uh, benefit of living in this age is like, you can just go on the internet. And of course you also have to be really smart about the sources you use because you know, like if you're watching one camera video, watch three more and see how all that information over, overlaps because maybe somebody doesn't know something or maybe somebody's skewing something to a certain degree um that's always important is making sure you have good information not just that you have information but um but yeah yeah my degree hasn't done shit for me i i uh, just did a commercial or i was just that commercial i was talking about earlier the big thing was that you know well no i haven't done commercials but i've done short film and they're like oh, okay well that that could that, that could work like let's let's take a look at what you've done um, as long as you have something you can show, that's when people get interested. But if you're like, yeah, I have a bachelor's in, in production. I, I know like everything I could do with lighting and how to work a camera and I know how to schedule things. And like, none of that matters if you don't, don't have something to show for it, which is kind of a cash 22 because you're like, well, I can't get the job without having made something, but I can't make something without having the job, the job. So um, at that point, that's where freelance comes in. And it's just like, okay, well, I have to make something no matter what. So I'm just going to find the jobs that allow me to do me to do that <laughs> and then stick with it for as long as possible. Because I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've like, you put a book together, you have your podcast ask you travel a lot to do, to do, um, a number of things. But if you didn't do that, you wouldn't be able to make anything because you'd be stuck doing a normal job. Um, and that's actually the number number one advice I got from any executive person in like film or television um, is don't don't do the track don't do it like if you want if you want to be a producer for the rest of your life work here but nobody's going to take you seriously outside of that job so either you need to take the leap and just do what you need to do do or you can do this job and you can start off in the mailroom and you can work your way up a ladder and you can eventually run the company maybe and that's all your job is because with those normal jobs, you get stuck in the bracket of like, oh, well, if I work hard enough, I'll get promoted. So I'll have to work less, but then you have to work harder. And it's a lot like that in the film industry where it doesn't, you don't get less work, you get more work. And uh, yeah, yeah. So oh, it's, it's kind of a nightmare and they don't, they don't support you at all. That's a thing too, is like, the industry wants you to like do all this work and they're not going to help you do it. So, um, <laughs> which I'm sure, you know, plenty of too. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. It's a challenging world, but what else would you rather be doing? You know what I mean? 
Oh, nothing. And that's, that's the benefit of that. That lifestyle is like, once you complete something like my short film, I've been working on for two years and it's going to be done. And at the end of April, the coronavirus lets up. And that's like, that's fucking cool. Like to sit there and be like, yeah, I spent two years on that and it's really good. And I'm, I like, I love everything about it. And now I know how to make something much bigger because I spent all that time doing something so much smaller. Um, that's a good feeling. And I don't know if you get that. I mean, I'm sure you get that working for a studio, but I don't think it's the same kind of like I did it myself kind of thing, you know, um, which I'm sure I don't, I'm not sure if you experience that a lot, but I imagine you would because there's a lot of stuff that you do. Um, that's like, it's totally dependent on whether or not you pull through on it. Um, and that's just something you don't get with a normal job is like that, that love self and happiness that you did something because you're like, this wouldn't have happened without me. And it was really fucking hard, but fuck, I did it. You know? Um, yeah. What about you? Do you have any of those kinds of experiences where you're like, yeah, I, uh, I'm actually working on a documentary about a bodyguard. He is a bodyguard for rock stars. That's like his thing. I'm super interested in like the crew behind the music because I feel like they don't get enough recognition. So I met this guy a couple years ago and he's a bodyguard for a rock band or several bands actually. Um, and so I just approached him and I was like, Hey, I would love to tell your story like, and make a documentary about you. And he was super down with it. And so we started it and then I basically sent him an hour long cut of the documentary. And he was like, my story has grown so much since then we should keep making this and just keep it going until we get to a place where it's like got a conclusion. And so now we're like three years deep and we're still like making content. Every time I go to Vegas, I see him and we make more content for this documentary and we're just piecing it together. So it's, it's been interesting working on such a long-term project and it it's kind of frustrating because you want it to be done and you want people to see it, but you know, at the same yeah. time, like the longer you work on it, the better it's going to get. No, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, but isn't that like the greatest feeling though? Cause you're like, it is sometimes it's an impassable object. Yeah. Like you're like, there's no way it's going to get done. There's no way mm -hmm. I can do anything better. Um, and sometimes it feels like all of it's just going straight down the drain. Like you're yep. just like, wait, like the other day, the most incredible thing happened to me when I was, you know, watching a cut, the, the picture lock of this movie that I'm making. And I was like, I lost all hope. Like, I don't know why. It was just a totally like stupid thing. I was sitting there and I was like, I fucked this up and it's never going to be good. And I don't know why I'm doing any of this. You know, like you hit that, that, that low, even though it's a high, cause you have a picture lock and you're just like, what the fuck happened? Like, I don't know what's going on and there's not really a reason for it. It just is that way. So it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I love it now, now that I've like taken a second to be like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to step back. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you know, that's um, something really awesome that I did. But, you know, it's especially something like yours where I can kind of relate because I've had a long period of time to work on this um, or not had. I've been working on this for a long time. Um, you know, I can't imagine working on a project like that where it's like it's almost never ending. But that's where you get the best doc work, you know. So that must be interesting <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, it, it definitely is. You know, I'm used to doing shorter, shorter projects for clients. Yeah. And so to be working on a personal project, I mean, even my book, my book took me six months to make. And not only that, but I was also studying for my pilot's license for my drone. And so I was doing yeah. all these, I'm always doing like a million things at a time, but like I was, you know, working on this documentary working on a book and working on my pilot's license all at the same time. And so it's like the, the short-term projects are super, super fun and super rewarding, but the longer projects to me, I think are even more rewarding because 
at the end of the day, you have this beautiful piece of art that just gets better and better as it goes along, you know, especially documentary work. Like I started filming it on one camera and now I switched to a new camera. So now the footage looks better. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's got like an evolution to the story. You see, you see not only like the, the visuals age, but you also see like the subjects age. So I think that's kind of an interesting concept when it comes to especially documentary work. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. What what kind of camera did you switch from? So I was on a well, I was on a Canon 6D when I started and now I'm on a Sony A7S2. So I went from Canon to okay. Sony and um so it's just been an interesting <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been interesting, you know, like the colors are different, yeah. everything's different about it and I had to learn a new camera, you know, which was like the thing that held me back for so long was like, I don't want to learn how to use this new camera. I'm so comfortable with my Canon, you know, but I love the Sony. And now that Canon, Canon has the, uh, the new R out, I kind of want to switch back to Canon. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Really? Why, why, why is that? Is it just because of, because of color or or is it just, I really like the color science of Canons, you know, there's something about it, but ah, fuck, I love, I love the low light of the Sony's, you know, and they're great for photo and video, which is, you know, a bonus. Yeah, that's, yeah. We, uh, for the short film, we shot on a black magic, uh, uh, pocket 4k and then we had a Sony for backup, but uh, I don't remember what kind of camera it was. Um, and it's very it's very interesting because with the black magic you have that dual native ISO. So you have these like brackets you can work in in post. So it's not all just just baked in. Um, but with the Sony it is. Um, it doesn't have have or yeah, I believe so. It's all baked in right away. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things for us was like, okay, well, how do we blend that Sony footage with the black magic so that it looks there's some kind of it doesn't have to look exactly the same, but it has to look close enough. And that was really interesting to like get into that technical issue because it's really close. It's if you know too much. I think that's where the, the problem comes in. If you know too much, you're like, no, but there's there are these points that are off. And you're like, yeah, but is anybody going to notice that? Do you have like a, you know, with that being said, do you have a point in the documentary where you're like worried people are going to see the difference? Is that something you're flaunting or is it? something you're trying to smooth over, um, having different. So at this point, I'm kind of okay with it being, you know, how it is. Um, I'm not really trying to like correct it, if you will. Um, I could, but it's a documentary at the end of the day. It's not like a, a cinematic piece of beautiful short filmness. You know what I mean? It's like a raw documentary. It's like all about real shit. And even the audio, like starting out the audio, we filmed in the back of a trailer at Warp Tour. Like it sounds like shit, but I mean, that's just a part of documentary filmmaking. You know, sometimes, like you said, like sometimes you're just running gun on your toes improvising. So, um, yeah, it's been very, very interesting to watch not only the visuals upgrade, but also the audio get better. So, Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's something I've been working on personally is like my audio. Like I have been working a lot on getting cleaner audio and better audio. And I love doing sound design as far as like editing goes. So I'm really big on like adding sound effects and, and Foley and all that kind of stuff to my projects, whether they are documentaries or otherwise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We're actually doing that right now. We're Foleying that film and it's so much fun. I, I love sound design. I did sound design for one of my earlier projects and it was all experimental. And the thing I love about it, that process is like anything's possible. I would sit there and I would, you know, record all these sounds and layer them in and all this stuff. And then I would sit and listen to it like it were music and just listen. I love listening to soundscapes. I just, I, I, freaking love it not soundscapes as in noise scapes but like soundscapes as in something built for an image um not in the musical context um just for anybody who knows the difference (laughs) Uh, there is a difference between music soundscape and soundscape for for footage um but i love listening to it i found actually one of those tracks the other day so it's kind of funny that you mentioned fully i found one of those tracks in my 
iTunes of all places, but it should have been in Premiere. I don't know why it was there, but I was listening to it and I just, it's so much fun. I think it's, it's fun because you have to listen to things differently. Like typically you go about your life and you're not, you're not thinking about it. Like you're just like, Oh, it's noise. And then when you have to like recreate it and you have to go and like match something or create something new for something, it really changes the way that you, I think even look at the world a little bit because you're like, wait, I could use this to sound like paper when I'm flipping through a book, but it's not paper or like, Oh, I, just realized I did three minutes of footsteps, pulling footsteps in a room with an echo that I didn't hear. So it doesn't work because it sounds like it's canned, but he's outside. And that kind of distinguish, that, that ability to distinguish between those those two things is really, um, it's, it's a very, very fascinating skill in my opinion. I couldn't do it for a living, but yeah, I fucking love it. I love it. Um, do you, do you have a particular, like, what do you, what would you fully in a documentary? Because I, I'm curious about that. Cause most of it's just very much on the spot. It's not yeah. like you're doing takes of something, you know? So I uh, typically I'm big uh-huh. on like B roll footage and, and like transition sequences. So I would do, you know, Foley or sound design, uh, for a documentary within those sections, um, just to add like, you know, uh, an ambient noise or, you know, whatever is needed in that, in that s- short sequence. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm using sound design and Foley in, in the documentary. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing, but uh, I wanted to bring my sound design, my love for sound design into the documentary world. So that's kind of what I'm doing there. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, I can really appreciate that just from like an artistic perspective i love using sound as a bridge that's that's one of my favorite things to do i think it it, it can have so many different applications um at least from a narrative standpoint i haven't done too much documentary so i wonder how that would work i mean i'm sure i've seen it a hundred times i just never picked up on it because that's you know that's kind of the point is that you don't pick up on it um but that's really fascinating um do you color your own work yeah, I color all of my stuff. Okay. Uh, what's that process like? Is that Have you gotten it pretty much down to a science? You're just like, input this and that and I'm done. Yeah, I it, mean, I've made, I've made some presets. So presets are definitely uh, a good way to go. So I have like, you know, I have for my live concert footage, I have a preset for that called Warped Tour. Um, I have you know, different... Uh, I mean, I could just go to Premiere right now and tell you some of the names of these presets... Um, I've got like, do you have fun naming them? Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I have life on Mars <laughs> has a lot of the reds pulled out, like, you know, so it's like a more red, yeah. red hue. And then I've got, um, like ink blot is a black and white setting that I have or black and white preset that I made. Um, so yeah, I, you know, uh, I just have a bunch of different ones that, that I kind of created and curated and I love using them. And I think the most used one that I have is called hospital ward and it kind of pulls, pulls the whites out a little bit more. So it's kind of brighter, you know, kind of like the setting of a hospital. So I called that one hospital ward. (laughs) It's, it's kind of like uh, not an overexposed, but like bridging that gap between what's totally exposed, like perfectly exposed and what's just a little too far. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly. interesting. That's interesting. And then, so you just film it um, as you would with your practical lighting and things like that. Uh, or do you film, like, do you, I guess, because, it, well, it's a documentary, so you wouldn't really worry too much about lighting. But, like, how do you, how does that work? I'm, now, I'm, now I'm curious because. Like, lighting for I a documentary? I can't even think about that. Yeah, like, lighting for a documentary, especially when you're considering presets like that. If you're doing documentary work you're not necessarily you know providing fill or anything like that so how do you how do you how (laughs) how do you do that (laughs) so um personally for me like when it comes to doing a documentary um i know that my interviews will probably have a preset um because i can light and it for an interview you know what i mean um 
and no matter what setting we're in we can we can figure out lighting for an interview um and then for the other stuff like the b-roll content that i'm filming um that i don't really think about the color grade beforehand uh that's more of an afterthought um just because i'm more so focused on the actual storytelling than the color grade um but i do film everything as if it was already edited so i already see the picture edited in my mind and then i just kind of reverse engineer how i create it interesting okay yeah that's that's interesting to me that you have such a process behind it like you you totally know what you're doing there's not a question of like well i'm not really sure how i would you know it's like no i do this very specifically um i like that that's cool some people don't know some people are like i don't you know whatever looks like i just i just pick up the camera and start shooting (laughs) yeah no that's yeah pretty much and and that's not bad it's not to say that that's like something that's you know horrible or stupid or anything it's just like people like that typically it's interesting they do have a process they know what it is, but they don't know how to talk about it. So they just don't quote unquote have one. But um, I always love hearing people's process on certain things where to see how articulate it is, but it seems like you pretty much yeah, you got that under wraps. Like you, you just know what you like. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's always been a fun thing for me is like figuring out that I don't like certain things when I go to make something, um, because you think like, I don't know, I'm always a very like rambunctious, like, well, let's do this and see what happens. And people are like, but that's like, people do that with these big old crews and shit. I'm like, yeah, but you know, let's figure it out. And sometimes it works really well. And you're like, wow, how did we get that whole like studio looking bit when with only two people or sometimes it fails miserably and I just, I love the process of figuring out what works and doesn't work in any phase of production. So um, for you, what does your process look like? For uh, post or? Uh, yeah, for post. What's your post process like? Uh, well, for film, uh, it's, it's a little different. Um, it's changed a lot. Before, I would just neglect certain things because I'd be like, I, I don't really see the utility in something like that. Um which admittedly isn't sound. <laughs> I, I used to have kind of like a negligence towards sound and um, I don't anymore, especially with this movie that I'm making now because sound is so important. Uh, but I also think it's a matter of like what you're working on because my film currently needs a lot of noise. It needs a lot of like footsteps and talking and shit, but like things I've done before don't really need that. So it is a matter of like what you're doing at the time. But um that was a huge thing for me coming into that side of production was like, Oh wait, I, I didn't really do sound very well. (laughs) You know, like how do you, how do you cope? How do you cope with that? Um, but basically I can only give you the process that we went through for the, for a chant, not for anything else, because we all also had a huge change up in, um, the crew. So the people I was working with were different. Um, but essentially, Essentially, what we would do is I'm a huge, I, I love organizing shit. I love it. So I go through all the assets and I organize them um, by take, by kind of take. I just, I like getting to categorize it. Like that's fun for me. So for some people, that's just a nightmare. They have other people do it, but I love it. Um, and then we sit down or I sit down with the editor and we kind of talk about what that person's not my thoughts, but my editor's thoughts on the script and where they see the movie going or the content or whatever. Um, because I, I'm a big fan of getting multiple points of view. You know, like I don't want it to just, film's a collaborative thing. I don't want it to just be my vision. I just want it to be something that we can all agree on. And sometimes um, I went through this process with my actors a lot. Um, having that complete, completely removed third party look at something can really reveal some interesting things about what you're doing. Um, it can definitely turn a performance. It can definitely change a performance entirely. Um, and with my editor, it was really interesting because we sat down and he was like, no, I see it. I see everything that you're seeing. And I'm like, you do, (laughs) you know, like how, how can you measure that? And, uh, 
he was like, yeah, no, we'll just figure it out. And um, he just genuinely was interested in my point of view. So I showed him what I wanted and we got through a lot of it. And, you know, one of the things that happens a lot with, with what I'm working on is that there are some sequences out of order, meaning that they were written a certain way, but they don't belong in the film that way. Um, I trick myself. That's I don't know how I do it. I just like, I watch it and I'm like, this is horrible. Like, why did I do it this way? And then it's just a different combination of that footage. Um, so it's almost like writer's block or something. I don't know. Like I didn't decode it clear enough, good enough um, when writing it. But we had a lot of those moments where he was just like, I don't think this is good. Let's flip it. And he almost knew more about what I wanted to do than what I wanted to do in my own head. It was weird. It was very cool. Um, and then we often would go out of our way to, and this happens a lot when I work on things too, go out of our way to make the stranger aspects of the, uh, production work. Like a lot of my effects that I use in my filmmaking are all practical. They're not really CGI'd in or anything like that. So, you know, we had a scene in the film where there was this kind of strobing effect, but we had to cut through multiple different kinds of footage uh, or different, or different takes from different perspectives. And those like interlinking parts is really interesting because like I said, a lot of the stuff doesn't come out decoded quite right. So in the script, it sounds like one thing, but it's shot as a different thing. And basically the whole beginning process of editing is just sitting there and, and figuring out exa exactly how those special effects, how those like weird interlinking pieces that are there but not there um and, and where they go and go and how to do that that's essentially what the, what the editing process is like and then um we probably run through it like five or six more times for this for this film we probably i mean we i did the math we did about 114 115 hours of work on the edit um before we got a picture and um it's very specific. Like I, I will literally go and sit and watch the half second mark count by just to get the right interlocking of cuts, in my opinion, um, that's the way they work. So um, I'm very much about the small things and that's why it takes so long is the, the, uh, my editor and I will literally sit there and go, okay, I want a second off the front or I want half a second off the front or I want this black portion to extend to 15 seconds and there's not any sound that's really prevalent throughout the film because we had to fully a lot of it. The music's a bit off where my composer's in the middle of doing it. So essentially we're editing a film with no sound, no music by seconds, like just, just literally time counts. And those change, um, you've used Premiere before, so you understand it. like editing in the back is not necessarily super easy. So I use time codes and we often sit there and we, uh, edit from the back. So we actually don't edit from the front. Yeah. So we, we cut back. So that way we don't fuck up the time code at all. Wow, uh, that's and that genius. is also Holy a shit. really interesting way of looking at the movie because it makes it look weird. Like you're looking at it and you're like, okay, I'm going backwards by like tens of se seconds. And I don't, I don't know what's going on in the movie. That's a pretty big indicator. Like I should, I should be able to look at the image and be like, I know exactly what's happening. That's my opinion on that matter and that's the way i treat it so it's like i don't i don't just watch it forward when i do the edit notes i watch it forward when i edit it i edit it backwards so i have this kind of weird back and forth with the cut that is very personal and very very like down to the most microscopic detail um and that's just kind of i don't think that's maybe that's atypical but i don't think that's super atypical for narrative filmmaking because you do have to make a point so specifically you do have to um, keep people entertained. So there, there's kind of a necessity there, but with my editor, it's really fun because we just sit there and even though it gets boring, like we're just kind of like, like making jokes. One of his big quirks is like slowing things down. He loves slowing shit down. And it's, it is really funny. We had this outtake I posted on my Instagram where we were doing the, uh, twilight zone intro and I can acapella twilight zone intro and we slowed it down to like, <laughs> you know, like 50% or whatever. And it, it's pretty funny. Um, and we almost thought about doing a whole cut like that, but <laughs> we thought that people would like take us seriously. Like that 
that was what we did with our time. So uh, we did not. But um, yeah, so we so we go through that editing process, and when I'm very, very you know very sure that that's what I wanted, um, we go to sound, and he records all the sound in house because he has like all the material. And by, by the way, this is like not a studio. This is like a, a home. He has like. I wish I met him earlier because he has so much good shit that I didn't get to use. But um, he, basically he goes through and he bullies the whole thing by himself. Um, and um, and then he's learning how to color. He's not quite a, a colorist, but we have a friend who's a DP um, who does a bunch of like freelance stuff like me. And he um, was like, yeah, I, I know you guys. Uh, he's gotten to know me a little bit and, and he was just basically like, I'll teach you how to color. So we have like my editors learning how to color as we're color grading it. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting. Um, and, and then there are a ton of other technical aspects because, you know, you have to worry about the dual native ISO. You have to worry about the types of footage that you're using or, you know, frame rates, color. Definitely, I, I feel like is the most important thing of a film besides the edit. Uh, I, I I mean, obviously there are staples like music editing and coloring, but color can say using color as a mechanism for the narrative. So um, a lot of it is just like fine tuning the small details because all of it's present in the script. And then, well, 99% of it is present and present in the script. And the 1% of it is present in my head. Um, and I basically sit through the whole thing. I don't go anywhere. So, um, you know, I, I have a lot of film friends who are like, yeah, you don't want to be there for every for every second of the edit. And I'm like, yeah, I do. Why wouldn't I want to be there? You know, it's because I go to that level, that deep level level of, of organizing and cleaning cleaning things up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was there for all 115 hours of editing, and I was there was there for like the first couple of hours of foleying. But um, with the coronavirus, it's not like I could just go over to his house, you know, um, because of the the fear of transmitting something so um or catching something so right now i'm letting him do that but that's essentially i mean i say that my process has changed a lot but i would say in general that's essentially the way i've always done it it's just who i've done it with um i think this time i was allowed to go to that deeper level where i was just like every every half second counts you know um i wasn't able to before so maybe that's why it feels different. But now that I'm talking about it, maybe it hasn't really changed. Um, but even if you look at like a lot of the special effects are very intensive. So I, I literally have to be there with him and be like, no, you need this, 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 uh, like down to like a hundredth of a second. It's really probably unnecessary. But, you know, um, with Infinite Loop, my, pre it's not, let's see, I, did borderline and before that i did infinite loop infinite loop all of the special effects in that are just like elaborate frame holds so that was really interesting and that was a pain in the ass to work through but a lot of my special effects are like that where it's like you want to do what why do you want to do that <laughs> you know and people kind of get like not upset but they're like some of them are like yeah that sounds exciting and some of them are like dude do you know how difficult this shit is i'm like no i don't <laughs> I don't. I'm not an editor. I have no clue. I edited right. 24 hours straight in Premiere once, and I decided that I was never going to do it again. Um, so, yeah, that's that's essentially the process as I know it right now. And then, what what are your plans for the Premiere for the future of this project? Um, do you want to submit it to film festivals? Do you want it on Amazon, Netflix? Like, what do you what do you hope for this for this bad boy? Well, would you believe it if I said it might be illegal? <laughs> I have no right to the adaption of this content. So oh, we're kind of, so, well, yeah. So we're, we're trying to do the best job that we can possibly do before we get caught so that whoever catches us can be like, wait, let me see it. And then like, like it, you know? But it's based off of a Stephen King poem. So it's it's kind of like, He's a huge asset right now, and um, I'm not really sure with shows like Castle Rock how that affects my right to this. But essentially, in the in the uh, '80s, he had a uh, deal called the Dollar Baby Deal, and 
you could just give him a dollar and he's like, yeah, you can adapt it. I can't necessarily make money off of it, but I have in a roundabout way made it, a, made the film a learning resource because I was originally going to put it in 320 festival, but it didn't, that, that didn't happen. Um, I actually don't even <laughs> know what's going on with that right now, but, um, essentially I just have to give him a dollar and hope he doesn't sue me. So I can't make any money off of it. Um, I might be able to with the idea that it's like, like I might be able to monetize on it because of it being a mental health resource, but we'll see. Um, my goal really was just to put it on YouTube, let everybody have it. Um, and really like the really special parts of the, cause we did the Indiegogo and Indiegogo campaign and, um, really the special part about that is that we're giving people, you know, really special perks. Um, yeah. So basically we were just kind of thinking like, we'll dump it on the internet. If they want to take it down, they can take it down. But as many people as possible that can see it before it happens, uh, you know, but to see, it's, it's one of those risks, you know, you got, sometimes you just got to take a risk and this one really spoke to me and, and, uh, you know, I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also not a slacker. I'm, I'm a fan. I've read like 30 of his books. So it's not like I'm just like, oh, I want to make a quick profit. Um, it's I genuinely care about the material. And, um, you know, mental illness and mental health have a pretty big part of my life, um, as I'm sure um, you know. I know you know. And uh, anything. Yeah. who knows me who's listening to this or um yeah I, i'm just it's really important to me so i'm kind of running with the risk of getting caught and getting in trouble um but hopefully i don't <laughs> that's that's my fingers crossed i don't get railed for this but um i think anybody who sees this, it's going to be like oh wait this isn't just some weird like dumb thing you know um hopefully that's my my hope but I've been really close to it. Wow. If, uh, if Stephen King happens to be listening to this podcast, uh, can you just let Jamie use the, the adaptation, please? That would be great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Give rights to it. I'll take all the money for it. That'd be awesome. Um, but also, uh, Stephen, if you want to come, come meet me somewhere, like you want to get coffee, I'll give you a dollar. So that's also a reasonable a solution. I'll take the rights, but I'll also give you a dollar. Um, but like my, my goal, right. Is, and this is just me fantasizing is that he sees it. Like his manager calls him and he's like, we got this, this asshole over here trying to steal rights to your thing. And he's like, bro, hold on. Let me check this out because he actually really likes his fans. Maybe he'll check it out. Right. And then yeah, he's like, Oh my God. Wow. This is so good. I just, just I just gotta, I gotta meet this guy. And then I have like, three or four, you know, studio pictures. That, hey, that's the deal. That's the deal. I give him a dollar and he's like, like, Hey bro, here's like, <laughs> here's, here's a, it's to like four movies. I want me. Yeah. Only you can do it. Uh, only me. But of course that's not how real life works. So I, I would just be happy. I tweeted him um, way back when I started this, when I had a much bigger social media influence and I, or presence, I guess. And I, I was like, Hey, I'm going to make something. Can I have the, can I get, send you a dollar? And he never responded to me. So I have that on record as me trying. Hey, at so, least you gave it a shot, right? Yeah. Fun anecdote. My, Michael Giacchino did respond to me once on Twitter. That was really fun. He made fun of my ears. It was awkward. <laughs> but I don't know. Like maybe he's cool. Right? Yeah. But yeah, that's my plan for that. Um, and then my last question for you is, what is something you know now that you wish you knew when you started? The project? Like in terms of filmmaking? Yeah, just filmmaking in general. Oh my God. I learned so much. <laughs> Dude, I got, yeah, I got a lot of things I learned. Um, one, and this is really important, I probably should have made an LLC for the movie and put all my money in it. Um, <laughs> that would have been super helpful in any context. I, I did it out of my personal like bank. So I didn't have the 
um, foreknowledge to create a business around the movie and then fund the movie through it. Um, so we got super lucky because we could have gotten in a lot of trouble if something went wrong. Like if somebody got hurt or a piece of equipment broke or whatever, um, that would have been a bad thing. So do that. Um, when you get money from crowdfunding, not a part of your production company, which you used to do everything, um, put it into an LLC for that project. Just do it. It's not that hard. Hard. It's like you might have to spend a hundred bucks on your own, but you can manage it yourself and you can do everything right. <laughs> that was really, really important. Um, did not know that, know that until about two weeks ago. And then, um, another thing I, I learned was that, um, you know, I probably should trust my, trust my gut more. Um, and I, and I have started to do that a lot more since I started filming this because there are so many shots in the movie where I was like, every, everybody on the crew was like, dude, we can't do that. We don't have enough, have enough time. We don't have enough equipment or people or whatever. And I was like, okay, you know, let me reconfigure configure and then i went back to the drawing board like on set rewrote the way something was going to happen and then was like okay we're going to do this in a single take or okay we're going to do this with this or these lights or that and um you know i think you get pushed back immediately and i think that's why i was so scared to do it but you know there's no the only thing you can ever do is fail right so it's like you're either going to fail because you didn't do it or you're going to fail because you tried and, and that's something that I had to really lean into on this project. It was like, well, I could just wait to get the right legal rights for this, or I could make it and just hope that it, it sticks the landing. Um, and I'm way more happy that I did that, you know, because I would otherwise I'd be sitting on my ass all the time just trying to figure something out. Um, and I think to your crew and your cast look at you a little different when you take the leap and, and you stick it. You know, it's not, it's not about theatrics. It's not like, oh, guys, watch what I, I can do. I'm going to scare you all and, and see if you trust me afterwards. It's more like they trust you to take that leap. And then once you, you know, land and you, you make that landing and it's, it's a strong one, um, even if it's a little shaky, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit more like, okay, you can kind of do whatever you want now. Like, like I tr trust you to make the right decision in that, in that way. That's what they mean. It's like, I trust you to do that. Um, you know, and I think that's also a natural part of the process is just like things change and things. Sometimes you have to do things that you didn't think you were going to have to, um, and not being afraid of that, just being like, okay, well, this is what we got. And now we got to deal with it. And, um, we've hit a couple of, of parts in the production where we've been like, oh shit, we fucked up really bad. And there's no coming back from it and what do you know there is always a way to come back from it and um you know i that's probably the most valuable lesson is is that there's always a light at the end of the tunnel and if you're gonna make that that uh risky decision you better make it don't don't hesitate on it um yeah, yeah i mean that that's just done wonders for me just taking that leap so i'm trying to think is there I learned a lot. That's that really is like a generalization of what I learned. You know, like I think pretty much everything could probably fit under that umbrella. But um, you know, also like run sound on everything. Everything. I don't like one of the things I you know, and I I admit you know I wasn't as vigilant on it because again, most of my sound I did in post. I redid it completely for my other projects. If I did do sound at all. Um, even the camera mic, run that fucking mic. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, because if you're foleying at any part of the process, which if you're doing narrative filmmaking, you, you're going to foley, um, you know, you need reference sound for one. So even if it's bad sound, you still know what it kind of sounded like when you were in that room, because room tone is really important what that person's voice sounded like, what that envelope sounded like, what that footstep sounded like. And then you can kind of like figure out which sounds were most important and then rebuild those sounds based on, on that knowledge. But you can't do it at all if you don't have audio. <laughs> so <laughs> roll your mic. Um, hands down, probably the biggest issue with my movie right now is that we did not roll enough of that mic. 
And um, it's not anybody's fault in particular. We didn't even have a sound crew, so we're lucky we have sound, sound at all. Um, but, you know, for any of you amateurs out there, don't make that particular amateur mistake. Um, because you can hide a lot of your visible mistakes in the footage by having good sound. And that's a fact. 100%. So. Those so, are my three bits of wisdom on that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's, you know, some people are like, just don't even know how to answer that question. So you gave a lot of insight there. Um, if anybody wants to hire you or find you and pick your brain some more, where can they find you online and how can they get a hold of you? Honestly, it's probably going to be my, my Instagram. I, I look at and answer most any message, any DM. Um, my website is down right now, currently reached it and um yeah I, I honestly think that's probably the best that or my soundcloud uh, my soundcloud is just my name jamie bennington and then um my instagram is not my name <laughs> my instagram is awesome frisbees with a z i love it like a frisbee throw it's a z. well it's it, I honestly wish it was different just because I started my Instagram as a, as a mock account. It was supposed to be a joke and now I use it for like all of my networking. So yeah, it used to exclusively be pictures of my foot. Wow. You were uh, making an only fans before only fans. <laughs> oh, I was a what? Only fans. You made an only fans account before only fans existed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was a angsty high schooler. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, essentially, I was like, Instagram's stupid. Why post pictures of yourself? Blah 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 blah. And I posted pictures of my feet to like make fun of people who took pictures of themselves. And now I don't use it as much as I did when we were doing the first couple of shoots for the production or the Indiegogo. But you know, like I still post. Like I have. I mean, I kind of have to because it's where people go to get information on what I'm doing, which is important. But it's um, mm -hmm. it's just it's kind of funny how that turned around. So Awesome Frisbees is an immature handle made by an immature child who is now a grown man and now has no way to change it uh, because that's yeah. what <laughs> So <laughs> the ghost right. of, of social past. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on Project Freelance and sharing your insight with my audience. I appreciate you taking the time out of your quarantine to do this. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So this was my podcast with Jamie Bennington. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, hit that subscribe button. And if you're already subscribed, have you left feedback or a rating? It helps the podcast grow on the iTunes charts. So if you do me a huge favor and no matter what, platform you're listening to this on head over to itunes download apple podcasts and leave a rating for me give it five stars if you liked it give it whatever you feel it deserves and if you leave some feedback as well which is where you actually put like a comment in the comment section about the podcast um, and you leave some feedback i will send you a signed photo print of one of the photos that i've taken from either an abandoned building or from nasa or from one of my many travels i will send you a signed photo print just to say thank you for leaving feedback on the podcast. If you guys enjoyed this episode, like I said, please hit that subscribe button and come back next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for another episode. Again, thank you for listening to Project Freelance. My name is Kay Anagonio. Stay strong, keep enduring, go out, and go create something. <laughs>